What's poppin' beautiful people? Your happy accident has led you to the Stupid Scientist Podcast. And these are my inner ramblings. As you're listening to this broadcast, I challenge you to do three things. First, expand your mind. Second, think critically. And last, but certainly not least, probably one of the most important things a scientist does is to formulate new hypotheses. I hope, oh how I hope, that by the end of this, you feel just a little bit stupid. But check it, don't you dare stay that way. Welcome back, beautiful people, and we're going to pick right back up where we left off in the last episode. Hope you enjoyed the rest of the conversation. Brianna, you said something that made me think about this um, webinar that I was on a few weeks ago. And I don't work at an academic institution, um, but I have one of my mentors who does. And he's talked about, um, for instance, like a need in the paradigm shift and the criteria shift of what's necessary to become, for instance, like a tenure professor or to advance in your career. And um, in his work, he, he, he firmly believes that science should be for the betterment of mankind. So he works in environmental justice. He does his water quality studies, not to just publish, 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 but to make sure that the communities can understand their water quality or that the communities can understand their air quality and make decisions to empower them to improve air quality and yada, yada, yada. But um, those impact and that impactful science, that impactful work doesn't help you move up the chain in academia. Um, the number of papers you publish, you know, the number of students who you um, mentor um, and all of these other factors that I'm not aware of are the factors that, um, that help you. So even in, you know, this idea of like, if, if we are to do this work to help better our organizations, better our communities to do impactful work. I think that at all different levels, at like the NIH funding level, at the government funding level, at the foundation funding level, and on the university um, awards and accolades level, I think that these things need to, in terms of like putting together and producing a better world, I think that these things, if they are valued, they need to be reflected in the award systems. So I think, you know, even here, as you were saying, you know, that this is not going to help you develop in your career. Perhaps this should be factored into, um, you know, your career trajectory. I 110% agree. I think academia is, is rigid and built on the ideas of old white men again, and it definitely needs to shift. Preach. <laughs> we can go home now. That's the... That was a word. That was the word. <laughs> it was a whole word. Oh, yeah. I, I did want to vaguely, well, not vaguely, but I wanted to briefly mention um, about how HBCUs can help develop networks for people in, in various careers. Um, and so really, if you all have experience um, at your respective institutions where um, Tuskegee or Prairie View um, and even Emory provided a connection uh, for, for you all to 
um, communicate with someone to serve as a mentor or uh, reach out to that alumni network who are in various phases. Can you can you speak to that? Was that an opportunity available to you at your school? I made it an opportunity. Well, were you talking about now and going back to, to mentor at the while while you while you were there, did you have that opportunity? And now that you are in your current position where you are, um, are do you see yourself going back and, and pouring into those students? Yeah, well, I don't want to keep taking over everyone's speaking time. I'll be very brief. Um, yes, I did have those opportunities while I was in at Prairie View to to have networking a lot of networking opportunities just because of the. Um, programs that I was involved in. I was in the honors program. I was in the undergraduate medical academy. So those things allowed me to have a lot of different connections. But also now I make mentoring opportunities. I reach back to Prairie View and, and figure out ways that I can connect with the students. Just the other day, I was in a um, Zoom call um, and we I was with the, the current group of honors students and discussing sort of the path it was a panel of us, but we we're talking about the path to kind of get to where we were. So I think mentorship is super important and I'll, I'll leave it at that, so. Um, as, as a minority in, in PWI, at PWI institutions, those support networks and communities were critical to me being able to navigate the process and are actually the reason I would attribute to even being able to successfully complete the programs I participated in. Um, and since those communities weren't overrepresented at those schools, a lot of these initiatives were student initiated. And um, they were really critical. Even from um, undergrad at Emory, I participated in the Hughes program, which was um, it essentially about, I think a week or four days or so before school started allowed an a select number of underrepresented minorities to come to campus, move in, get acclimated, speak with professors, get paired with minority mentors, upperclassmen. Um, and these pairings um, kind of persisted with you throughout your time through, um, through school. So, you know, you kind of got insider tips and things. So you don't have to go through some of the hardships that they did and just kind of seeing that there are people there that look like you that have similar experiences you as you to help you through the process was really uh, for me coming from all black everything to Emory was really essential at Duke um, it was a little different but there are similar programs in place um, BioCore allows students to come and start the rotations uh, over the summer actually so that way they can get acclimated to the city the university academia the resources available um, and something that I thought was really nice that Duke the student, one of the student organizations does actually during the PhD interview process. So the interview weekends, typically students are flown out for two days. And one of those days you have faculty interviews like the whole day, you might interact with students, but it's pretty, we're pretty much in like um, either individual, just you and your host, or you might be with a cohort of people who probably don't look like you. And so what our one of our student organizations did is they took the initiative to negotiate with faculty members to allow so sorry at the end of the interview day there's usually a faculty dinner so the, the recruits go to the dinner at a faculty member's house and continue conversations amongst their cohort of people who probably don't look like them 
So what our student organization negotiated is for them to be able to reach out to minority applicants who are asked to interview at the university and um, invite them to participate in a separate dinner where um, the student, they'll coordinate transportation. So they'll go to the faculty member's house, pick up the students that are interested and take them to a separate dinner where they have a dinner or a social gathering where people of color from that organization across different departments are there. And so it's a safe space essentially. So in that way, you're, you get to not only see that there are other people that look like you in, a, in departments that you might not necessarily interact with, but you're also able to ask questions that you probably wouldn't feel comfortable asking your faculty, you know, um, people that are interviewing you or non-underrepresented minority peers. And so like through that, that dinner actually was largely why I chose to go to Duke because I coming being from the South, I'd always thought that Duke was had a horrible reputation for race relations. I didn't think that there would be people with that identified with the way I thought things should be or thought like me or that my opinions would be reflected in any meaningful way. So through this dinner, I was able to see one that there's not, you know, there's a lot of minority scientists at this institution who are doing well. And to meet them across departments, as I said, to ask them questions that, you know, you would ask your homegirls or, you know, your people, but you wouldn't ask your colleagues. And so just creating that space for me and knowing that those people were there was really essential and making those connections um, was really pivotal towards my experience. They also have um, an Office of Diversity and Inclusion. That that support network was really essential to me. Um, I didn't have a straightforward PhD experience where you join a lab and you you know you stay in that lab the whole time. I actually switched labs twice because of really terrible mentorship and horrible um, experiences and just kind of mistreatment, sexism, racism, things like that. And so, if it weren't for those communities, I wouldn't have felt empowered enough to identify those as problematic to speak up or to get the resources to go to change environments into an environment that was more supportive and conducive to me completing the degree. So, you know, I didn't, those, those support networks for me are just critical for retaining students. And I feel that the student, I have a lot of peers that didn't make it through the program. And those, a lot of those people are brilliant scientists and it's not due to their lack of ability or capacity to learn or perform, but I feel like it was issues of support. They were from labs that, you know, didn't didn't value their voices, didn't didn't value their contributions, didn't give them the resources or the tools they needed to succeed when they were very well equipped to do so. And so I think that it's essential, especially for PWIs, to pr to provide a means for people of color to attain these resources because there's so much lip service, there's so much attention given towards recruit, 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 and you bring these minorities into these situations and you essentially set them up for failure. And that that causes harm. I know that coming from the schools I came from, I wasn't prepared for college. And so when I came and I struggled, you know, I, I performed the top of my class in high school, thought I was a big fish in a little pool, came to college and didn't do well my first semester. That I internalized those failures as a reflection of me. I thought that everything that the projections of what my abilities that my white peers and colleagues placed on me were true because of struggling, because I was doing the same things I did in high school to succeed and they weren't working. And had I not had those communities to, to have a space to articulate, you know, think when I didn't, ex when I didn't understand things, I'm, I wasn't comfortable in a class of a hundred plus people raising my hand to, ex to express that I don't know what a mole is in an intro chemistry class. But, you know, and I thought when I didn't understand things that it was just me, but having these safe spaces where I could express, you know, things that I didn't understand and actually ask questions to the level of understanding and not just asking once someone giving you an answer that you don't understand, but you're too embarrassed to push and actually ask to the layer of depth that you need for comprehension. 
you know, I was able to find those communities. I was able to find uh, underrepresented minorities who some people were struggling, some people didn't. Regardless, collectively, we we're able to come together and develop strategies to learn the materials that we needed and to persist and to encourage each other and help each other. And these spaces are largely, like I, like I said, I attribute to my ability to survive and also just vent because we go through a lot of crap that other people don't. And if I didn't have that soundboard to just lay out all the things I can't say without getting probably on some kind of probation in academia. Um, I also, I don't, I don't think I would have made it. So it's, it's incredibly important. There was a individual, I was listening to an interview, interview a while ago when there was an individual who was speaking as an expert. He's a professor at Harvard now, black man. And he talked about the disservice of bright, exceptionally bright African-American uh, children and teenagers going on to Ivy League institutions and how he he talked about, and it, it really pissed me off because he was just like, um, you know, these kids are, are bright and exceptional in their own right, but then they come to these Ivy League institutions and they don't do well. Um, and it's because they, they aren't equipped to do well in those environments. They're just not good enough to be in that environment versus their white peers um, they have had these experiences. And it, and it ticked me off because I'm like, no, that's not it per se. There, there's a lack of proper equipment because there are, there are networks and peer groups that are developed at those institutions. And um, maybe I shouldn't say the university name, but I noticed that there were skills that these individuals had that weren't necessarily innate and it wasn't innate intelligence. It wasn't their ability to process information and study. They had tools available to them in the form of last year's exam that they got from somebody else who took the course. And so they studied the exam and they were able to pass because of that. And versus a student who was not in that group a black student who was ostracized from those peers, they don't have last year's exams to study. And so they don't do well. So while they might have a 75 on that exam, that 75 is that what they earned on their own by studying on their own. So when you think about it, the black student who's ostracized might actually be smarter than the white kid who cheated. Ain't no skill. <laughs> Ain't no skill. Ain't no skill. <laughs> Mommy, daddy's a PhD already. You have a short, I mean, that's a level of access that a lot of us don't have either. Even in the confidence, like I'm over here trying to say, can I have a PhD? And they're like, oh, I mean, we've been doing that since 1850. You know what, back then, my people were picking up cotton. <laughs> anyway, I just want to add um, that I, one thing I've really noticed and I valued about Tuskegee University, and I think this is true of other HBCUs too, is that beyond um, being a student and being able to access the a network of alumni, um, we seem to be very open to helping each other um, once we're alumni. And um, this is you know, a benefit in career, like I've lived and worked in the DC area and there are so many very successful Tuskegee University alumni working in government and private sector and every other sector there. And they're very open to helping you get a foot in the door. But not only are they open to helping you get a foot in the door, they're open to help you, helping you get a foot in the hottest bar in the city and um, a place to sleep when you don't have anywhere else to sleep and a place to get some warm food if you need some warm food somewhere. 
And so I think also just in terms of um, resiliency factors, because resiliency factors just holistically are so important for us. Um, that's also something I've found to be a really valuable part of being able to tap into this alumni and greater network of people from your school. Oh, and one last point, this is probably just a pet peeve of mine. Um, you know, I know we've used this word minority a lot here. Um, and I, just because of the makeup of the um, panelists, I've used the word black because I, well, I personally identify as black. Um, but you know, in, in terms of the globe, non-white people are the global global majority. And pretty soon in this country will be the national majority as well. And, um, you know, there's nothing minor about us. We, we are um, absolutely miraculous, to be honest. Um, as Black people, it is all people who are non-white and that's not diminishing white people. I'm not doing that here. I'm just praising and celebrating us for who we are. So I just wanted to make that point here on this podcast. All, all the feels like that just made me warm and bubbly on the inside. <laughs> Brianna, you said that there was something else that you yeah, wanted to mention. Just a very brief thing. So it's 2020 and there's still people that don't know what an HBCU is which I think is quite sad. And I'm not gonna define it here. There's Google, you can use it and figure out what it is if you're listening. Um, but I also wanna make this, this last comment that I get this a lot. Um, people think that if you went to an HBCU that you somehow had like a lesser education, um, that it wasn't as a quality education as going to a uh, predominantly white institution. Even other black um, people. Yes, even with amongst ourselves. And I don't know what the motto is at Tuskegee, um, but at Prairie View, our motto is Prairie View produces productive people. And um, this is the fact. Uh, I know so many intelligent and I mean, this panel, <laughs> accomplished individuals um, who have come from HBCUs. And I think that that stigma needs to dematerialize. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm gonna call it a word today. Um, so that's, that's what I wanted to say before we hop on. That, that, that is a beautiful way to close. It is a beautiful way to close. Well, folks, that's all we got for you this episode. Hope you tune in to the next one. And remember, it's okay to feel stupid, but don't you dare stay that way.